Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. I really want to give a warm welcome to Dr. Terry Walls, who is bringing us major breakthrough information and expertise. She is the author of Minding My Mitochondria, How I Overcame Secondary Progressive Multiple Sclerosis and Got Out of My Wheelchair. You've got to get this book. It's remarkable. Another book she wrote is Food and Brain Health, Lectures and Supplemental Materials. Dr. Walls is a professor of medicine at the University of Iowa. She did an 18-minute talk on TED in Iowa City that's had over 250,000 views. She has an array of tape lectures that she's done. She has a foundation and is doing clinical trials. You should also know she's working on her new book called Up From the Chair. Ladies and gentlemen, let's give a warm welcome to Dr. Terry Walls. Welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. Thank you. The way that you're navigating the introduction of the material and your life experience is one with tremendous calm, but also clear conviction about how we have to feed our brain and our mitochondria. Now, people have in the past, with great expertise, talked about the mitochondria and taking supplements and eating good food and having more vegetables. There's been books out on the paleo diet and hunter and gathers. But there's something about the way in which you're synthesizing so many pieces of a very complex spectrum that's exciting. Talk to us about why our mitochondria is so important, and in particular, your take on what we need to be doing with our mitochondria and our brain. In our cells, all of our cells, is a tiny subunit called the mitochondria. And that mitochondria manages the power that all of our cells use to drive the chemistry of life. If our mitochondria are very effective, then that cell will be very effective. If the mitochondria are struggling, then that cell will struggle. You know, when I had my MS and I hit the wheelchair, I went back to reading the literature because I knew basic science discoveries uh, can be 10, 20, 30 years ahead of uh, clinical practice. Uh, And so I was hoping I could find things that would slow down my descent into deepening disabilities. And as I was reading about problems in which uh, brains were shrinking, uh, such as MS, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, Huntington's disease, I saw that in all of them, mitochondria were not working very well. Uh, and the mitochondria would send a signal to the cell, uh, and in this case, the brain cell, to die too early. Uh, based on that, I then started researching what we could do to improve the effectiveness of the cells. Uh, and at first, I started looking for the, lewis, the latest, newest drug basic science research. Then it occurred to me that that was silly because I couldn't access those things. But if I uh, started looking for vitamins and supplements to support mitochondria, those were the things that I could take. Uh, so back in 2003, 2004, I learned that things like B vitamins, coenzyme Q, creatine, uh, and antioxidants, were, uh, plus sulfur, were all very, very helpful to mitochondria. <clears throat> and I started taking those. Uh, and what I found was that it, it slowed down my descent if I... Uh, stopped them, uh, I was profoundly exhausted and could not get out of bed. 
So uh, I uh, certainly tuned in to uh, reading more, understanding more about the mitochondria, and that that was very important for the brain. Uh, I, I now see that the mitochondria and the health of our mitochondria are critical for problems related to the heart, uh, to the kidneys, to the liver, uh, to the pancreas, and to uh, basically all of our brain disorders. Uh, so in my clinical practice, I spend a fair amount of time teaching my patients that they have to eat uh, specifically to improve their mitochondria, and that will improve the function of whatever uh, cells or organs that are have been compromised by their illness. I have a question as an MD. How do you look at the health of your patient's mitochondria? What are you looking at exactly? Basically, I'm looking at the person's health overall. So problems with headaches and fatigue are uh, big clues that mitochondria are impaired. Problems with heart, heart failure, that's another big clue that mitochondria are impaired. Uh, there's evidence uh, in people with diabetes or with liver problems uh, have difficulty with uh, uh, mitochondria as well. You know, when we look at uh, the basic science of uh, understanding the chemistry behind all of our disease states, uh, what we're discovering is that it's a very common pathway. All of our chronic diseases have at the root of the disease broken biochemistry, too much inflammation, and mitochondria that don't work well. Uh, and so I've shifted my focus clinically to helping people uh, use diet to address those problems, the uh, too much inflammation and mitochondria that don't work well. You're doing really what Hippocrates would do. You kind of remind me of the female version of a modern-day Hippocrates. You're saying food is medicine or food as medicine. Food is the medicine. There you go. Drugs may control symptoms. They can go after one step in the biochemical process. But by understanding uh, food, understanding uh, cellular biology more effectively now, I understand that the real solution to most of these problems is teaching people how to eat so they're providing their mitochondria and their cells the building blocks that are needed to do the chemistry of life properly. What do you say to people who say, listen, doctor, we know that our soils are so depleted in nutrients. How could we possibly expect what we might have expected thousands or hundreds and thousands and millions of years ago in terms of the food quality? What do you say to that? I certainly acknowledge that uh, there are some interesting studies that have shown the mineral content of our food steadily declined, as has some of the vitamin content. My advice is find a local farmer who uses a sustainable growing practice, certainly organic, and get your food locally. Well, I also am now partnering with Backyard Abundance to teach people how easy it is to incorporate an edible landscape and begin growing your own food or creating sprouts in your house garden, so to speak. I think health comes with greater food independence. Greater food independence comes with buying locally from sustainably grown farmers and growing your own food. I think that's great. I know that many of us are so attracted to Trader Joe's and to Whole Foods, and I certainly love going in there. But the scary thing on the vegetable area of these markets, and they're different, but a lot of the vegetables come from other locations around the world. It's not local. Yes, yes. 
And foods grown outside of the U.S., I think we have to have some concern over the quality, the rigor of the organic label. You know, and we'd have to have uh, concerns here as well over the rigor of the organic label. I like to spend my money in the community. I really like to buy uh, my meats locally, my produce uh, locally as well as I can, and growing it. I've become sensitive to concerns about cost and how to make this more uh, sustainable and doable. Uh, That's part of why I've been partnering with our master gardeners to develop some programs to teach people how to begin growing their own. That's fantastic. I love what you're talking about. On a whole systems level, this is really the way to go. You know, when I hear the conversations about health care reform and the exploding health care costs, no one is talking about the root cause of why health care costs are out of control. We're eating all this white sugar, white flour, high fructose corn syrup. We're not eating vegetables. We're starving ourselves. And until we fix that, health care costs will explode no matter what the government does. Worker productivity will decline and we will basically be destroying our future. That's right. I was delighted to see that you were following Dr. Weston Price and his contributions. I've even utilized his discoveries about dental work in the last few months of my life. (laughs) I had a tooth that reabsorbed and did not pay for and get a root canal and actually had it extracted and another tooth put in. Can you share with the audience about the blood-brain barrier, because certain things pass through it, certain things don't, and I think we need to establish a frame of reference for the public. I'm going to talk about two barriers here. There's the brain-blood barrier, and then there's the gut barrier as well. Perfect. And as it turns out, if we have a leaky gut, we're likely to have a leaky brain. Normally, if you're completely healthy, the lining cells that line our gut and line our brain have uh, what we call a very tight junctions or cement between the cells. And they do a, a very fine job of keeping big things out and letting in only the very tiny molecules that are biologically active doing the things we want to have happen in our brain and in our bloodstream. In our small bowel, We have 100 trillion bacteria, yeast, and parasites that live there and will digest our food, break things down, and make quite a number of biologically active compounds that will get into our bloodstream. What we've observed is that uh, depending on the bacteria that live in our gut, they sometimes begin to dissolve that cement. And so then the small bowel begins to be leaky. Uh, letting out uh, big, incomplete, incompletely digested proteins into the bloodstream. Where our white blood cells, which have been sitting uh, by the gut, inspecting molecule by molecule what's coming through the gut, will say, wait a minute, that molecule is too big. It must be in an, a troublemaker, an invading organism. And so they will mount a huge immune response to attack these molecules that are coming across. Uh, For example, if you have a leaky gut and the protein in wheat and dairy, that that would be casein uh, as in dairy, uh, gluten as in wheat, they get into the bloodstream, 
that person mounts a big immune response uh, and it, it revs up the inflammation in the bloodstream. Now, often, uh, people with a leaky gut will also have the same amount of leakiness in the brain, which lets these bigger molecules get into the brain, inciting a big inflammation response. So the, the root cause of the problem is the high-sugar, high-carbohydrate diet, leading to the leaky gut, which uh, sort of dissolves the cement in the gut, there's a similar dissolution of cement that occurs along the brain. And molecules that are too big escape into the bloodstream, creating a lot of ruckus, so to speak. And often in that same individual, those big molecules get into the brain, again, creating more ruckus. So the brain-blood barrier, that was the longer description, is what exactly? It's a mechanism? The brain-blood barrier, uh, there's a very tight lining that would separate the bloodstream contents from the brain. You have to go through several filters to get into the uh, clear spinal fluid that's bathing the brain. And if one has an infection of the brain, that barrier becomes leaky. Uh, For example, people with MS are more likely to have leakiness of that uh, barrier. Uh, we're beginning to realize that if you have a leaky gut barrier, you're more likely to have a leaky brain barrier. And so uh, proteins that are too large get into the brain. Uh, in that, uh, the, white, the immune cells in the brain don't like that, and so they rev up their uh, inflammation response, which is pretty toxic for brain cells, really creates all sorts of problems for us. You talked also about neurotransmitters, serotonin and norepinephrine. Norepinephrine, (laughs) Norepinephrine. serotonin. Another couple are dopamine, glutamate, uh, glutamine. So in psychiatry, we're we're very excited uh, to understand which neurotransmitters seem to be important with what emotional states. And so... uh, and I've prescribed these medications uh, many times myself for people with severe anxiety, depression, rage issues. Now that I understand brain biology much more effectively, I realize that I can influence uh, how we make neurotransmitters by food. Uh, and that uh, and I explained to my patients that if we don't address the food, the building blocks, for how you make the neurotransmitters, these drugs will be far less effective or completely ineffective. Um, it's just critical that we teach people how to eat so they have the building blocks to make the neurotransmitters and to make them in the proper balance. You know, you talk about food as medicine. Yes. Isn't food chemistry too? Oh, absolutely. I mean, food is chemistry. It's not just this thing we put in our mouths. It's chemistry. It, it, it's the chemistry. We, you know, you and I are alive because of chemical reactions. When those reactions stop, we're dead. If we don't have the right building blocks, those chemical reactions will happen improperly or not at all. And as we accumulate more and more improperly made molecules, 
that is broken chemistry, then our bodies will deteriorate. I will have problems with my mood, with my attention, with my energy, my blood vessels will get stiff, my heart gets stiff, I, I can't make as much insulin. And the docs, they're trying to help, they're doing drugs for the patient as best they can. But the root cause of the problem is the broken chemistry. And the root cause of the broken chemistry is usually starvation for the building blocks that we need to do that chemistry properly. In Mining My Mitochondria, page 154, you were talking about, for some people, the culprit being eggs and grains. Sensitivities, yeah. Sensitivities. You were sharing, basically, that you had eliminated grains and milk and legumes. You were on a Paleolithic diet. Right. And you continue to eat meat and poultry and fish and vegetables, including white potatoes, fruit, and eggs. But by 2007, you'd gone back to eating rice and occasionally beans. But in that reference, you talked about eggs were as part of the list of a culprit, but I didn't understand a culprit of what. In terms of triggering an immune reaction sensitivity, the frequency, at least here in America, the highest frequency is the gluten uh, in wheat, rye, and barley. The next highest frequency is casein in dairy. After that, it comes to albumin, protein, and eggs. Then we can get down to the lectins in uh, legumes. Okay. Uh, then it comes down to uh, lectins in potatoes. And then uh, the nightshade family, uh, which would be um, potatoes, tomatoes, peppers, eggplants. So you're not necessarily down on eggs, but in evaluating the different types of groups of things that may be offending people. Because I did an interview with a guy who's up for the Nobel Prize, and we had talked a lot about antioxidants and radiation and supplementation and hormones and so many things. And he said, don't worry about eggs, because actually once you cook them and you denature them, you don't have to worry about cholesterol. Then there's other people who say don't even worry about cholesterol, but you had on page 160 put down that there are certain foods that we eat that turn genes on that rev up inflammation or that dampen inflammation. Food can either put stress on mitochondria or facilitate better functioning mitochondria. You said try eliminating the common offenders and you had gluten, which I understand. You had milk and peanuts and legumes, but the fact that eggs were in there, I was confused. So maybe it's because of the albumin? It's the albumin. Okay. You know, and one can go on a oligoantigenic diet, take everything out and put things back in one at a time. That's pretty tough. In general, uh, right. what I have my patients do is go gluten dairy free, step one. Uh, and for many, that's enough. They're just profoundly better and they're very satisfied. Uh, but if that is, does not achieve the results um, that we'd like to have. Uh, the next step is to go paleo. Talk about what the paleo is. I think a lot of us think it's certain things, but your frame of reference is what for go paleo? The paleo refers to eating uh, a hunter-gatherer diet. And we know that the hunter-gatherers adapt their food to their locality so that the Inuits in the far north eat you know, uh, a lot of fish, seals, uh, not much vegetable material, and most of the diet was raw. Uh, that's very different than the Aborigines, uh, the Africans on the savannah, the Amazonian rainforest dwellers. So foodstuffs are highly variable. They're local, they're fresh in season. And the uh, traditional 
communities have been able to figure out which foods were helpful to their tribe and which ones were harmful. Now, the reality for me is that whoever the native peoples were for Iowa, they're not around anymore, and furthermore, we've totally changed the habitat. So I'd have a hard time uh, replicating a uh, hunter-gatherer diet here. And I think that's true for, for most of humanity. We've lost most of that ancient wisdom. We've destroyed the habitats. So what I did was the best approximation that I could. I took the concepts from hunter-gatherer, fresh, in-season, locally obtained, uh, elimination of the grains, the legumes, the dairy. And then, you know, I had to structure it. I had, go- I had gone paleo, uh, you know, earlier, 2002, but I didn't understand brain biology nearly as well. In 2007, when I had this uh, deeper understanding of brain biology and this long list of nutrients I had now identified as critical to my brain, my mitochondria, I uh, then did research to figure out where were these nutrients in the food supply. Uh, and then as I had sort of had this now, this big list of foods that I needed to eat, I uh, designed a diet that uh, is structured to get everything that, that I, at least I know is on the list. And I, and I did that assuming that, uh, you know, science, we're, we're good, but we certainly, there are probably hundreds, thousands of other compounds that are very important to my brain that science hasn't named and for sure are not on my list. But by going to the foods that would cover the nutrients I do know about, I would probably pick up hundreds, thousands of other nutrients that were very good for uh, myself. And so that's why I have things structured, three cups of greens, three cups of sulfur-rich, three cups of color, um, grass-fed meat, organ meat, seaweed, and, you know, that's the, uh, the overarching uh, structure. It takes out grain, takes out dairy, uh, takes out legumes. Uh, if people aren't willing to go all the way paleo, I really push them to go at least gluten-free, dairy-free, and to consider, you know, think carefully about soy. Soy might be okay, but, you know, there's some uh, risks with soy as well. Right, they're hormone disruptors, right? Well, they're hormone disruptors. If you look at the uh, traditional use for soy, it was a small part of the diet, not a huge part of the diet. Most of the soy products are, are not organic, so they are getting tons of Roundup uh, sprayed on them. Uh, and so there's a very heavy uh, pesticide load uh, on this soy. In addition, it's genetically modified, which changes the shape of the protein increases dramatically the probability of an immune reaction and food sensitivity. Same thing with corn. And, you know, it's another reason to try and get heirloom vegetables, organic, things close to home, so it's less likely to be genetically modified. I do want to talk to you about pesticide load and detoxing, but I just have a quick question. Do you drink any coffee? I never acquired a taste for coffee I'll drink tea, and I have several kinds of tea that I'll drink. I think having a couple cups of coffee is fine. Uh, having tea throughout the day is fine. I encourage the use of green tea 
and a variety of herbal teas. I think variety is a very good thing. And if someone's drinking a lot of caffeine, energy drinks now, I suggest that they brew strong tea, mix it with fruit juice of their preference at whatever ratio they would like, and use that in replacement of sodas and energy drinks. That sounds great. You have this expression, and I may not be saying it exactly as you said it, but the essence is if you're trying to mop up your floor full of water, you can't just keep mopping it up. you got to turn off the faucet, then mop up the floor. <laughs> Something ah. like that in terms of philosophy. Can you expound on that a little bit in terms of eating and medicine? Factory farming and food production uh, during World War II was transitioned to a heavily petroleum-based process and a lot of the chemicals that were used during the war were reinvented as products that we could use in our agricultural, industrial, and home environments. The Green Revolution uh, really ramped up, again, the use of pesticides uh, and in the uh, animal side hormones. So in our food supply, we are taking a tremendous load of chemicals that will interact with our biology. And we know babies that are born now are born with a significant load of pesticides, plastics, solvents, Teflon, heavy metals in their bloodstream. So we have all this stuff, which will get parked in our fat, in our brain, and all of that is biologically active, revving up the inflammation and damaging us. So what in most most Americans are eating so badly that their liver, their kidneys cannot process and eliminate these toxins very well, so they get parked in fat and brain. What uh, I and I see a lot of folks who have uh, toxic load issues. So we talk about detoxification using kelp, algae, berries. Uh, and a, and a variety of other herbs to support the liver and the kidney as they remove these toxins. Then, in addition, so we, we improve the excretion of the toxins. Then we have to talk about decreasing the intake load. So I uh, then talk about uh, organic food, uh, talk about green cleaning processes. I ask people to think about their environment, uh, their work environment, their home environment, how many chemicals are they using. Uh, in our personal care products, there's a lot of toxic chemicals. In our cleaning products, there are toxic chemicals. We put on sunscreen, which is full of toxins. So, so I have those conversations about what are all the toxic uh, exposures that you have and ask the person to think about what they can do to reduce and eliminate those is that the part of turning off the water faucet that That's, you're yeah, referring turn to? Yeah, off the water faucet. Okay. But it's a lot easier to empty the bathtub if you turn off the water faucet. <laughs> you know, you turn <laughs> off the uh, water and then just open up the drain. It will, it will go out a lot faster. Now, I did an interview with Dr. Nick Gonzalez, who works with a lot of cancer patients in New York. Yeah. And he has been doing coffee enemas for like 30 years. Yes. as a way to detox. So the Gersten Institute also uses it. 
It's supposed to be pretty incredible. Have you heard of it, and have you ever yeah, done it? Yeah, you know, I, I have heard of it. That certainly is another uh, option. But it has to be organic, they said. It must uh, be it's organic. organic. Uh, what you w- want to be doing is getting the stuff out of the stool. I talk with my folks about uh, having a soft BM, preferably two or three a day, and to take enough fiber, enough prunes, so that that's what you're doing. Uh, and for some people, it's a tablespoon. For others, it's three or four tablespoons of things like chia seed, which is a, a, a great fiber, lots of marvelous nutrition there for you. Coffee enemas are an option. Uh, I don't talk about that in my book. I think that's better to have a personalized physician who can guide the use of something a little more invasive like enemas. You would put that one in three children in the United States will get either diabetes or become obese today. That is so depressing. We are killing our society. The sugar molecules stimulate our dopamine, our pleasure center. We now know that sugar white flour, high fructose corn syrup, is more addicting than nicotine and is more addicting than cocaine. Wow. You know, I was having an omelet the other day, and I said to a friend of mine who was putting Heinz ketchup on her omelet, I said, do you know that that has high fructose corn syrup in it? And she said, what? I said, yeah, it has high fructose corn syrup. Now, when I was a kid, ketchup didn't have high fructose corn syrup in it. What happened? Well, uh, the food industry figured out that we like things sweet. High fructose corn syrup is very cheap. Uh, it creates more incentive. Sales are higher. And so... Doesn't that it excite gets- the brain? Yeah. You also add that gluten... The protein in wheat and casein, that protein in dairy, will stimulate the pleasure centers in the brain as well. I did a whole show a couple of weeks ago on wheat with the author of Wheat Belly. Oh, my God. Wheat isn't like thousands of years ago. It's totally molecularly changed. Very much so. Although I'll also tell you, I don't think even the ancient wheat was very good for us either. If you look at medical anthropology, they can tell when... Societies go from a hunter-gatherer society to a uh, farming society because people got shorter, they developed arthritis, and uh, they developed bad teeth. That's interesting. So then we further modified the grain, and we've made it into a more toxic compound. I noticed in your book you're also very much committed to a detox program. Yeah, we're all toxic. Uh, Some of us are going to be more toxic than others in our clinical trial. I would also say the diet, the Walls diet, is great for detox in a very nice, slow, gentle way. Uh, One of the hazards of detox, if you do it too quickly, you pull it out of the fat faster than what your uh, liver and kidney can handle, what you'll end up doing is redistributing those toxins to your brain and your heart. Is that a fact? If you have to detox, at a pace that your liver and kidney can handle, or you're shifting toxins from your fat stores to your brain and heart. Is that a fact, or is that just something you've noticed through observation? No, that's a fact. Wow. When you go through a a chelation process, uh, that can be very tough. And people are having these healing crises. Right, they have die-off in the body. Die-off in the body. Right. Uh, So if if you have some die-off, Herxmeyer, from the Canada dine, 
Uh, but there's also the healing crisis from the toxins being sucked out of the liver and redeposited into the brain. I noticed that you are big with kale. I love kale, and I'm sure many of our listeners do. 700 to 1,000 grams a day of kale. Okay, how many bowls of that? <laughs> so what I have is uh, basically two platefuls of greens. So, you know, I have a big plate heaped high. We also do kale chips, uh, so it's shrunk by half. I would make the observation that it's best to rotate. So kale today, lettuce tomorrow, spinach the next day, and then kale or collards. So I want to have greens, but I think it's most ideal to have a different green uh, every day. For the variety. God loves variety, and so should we. Now, there's an area of minding my mitochondria where you kind of put the brakes and a cautionary texture to supplementing. I was kind of surprised, but I understand where you're coming from. But talk a little bit about that. You're okay for supplementing for certain things, but I notice a tremendous reserve in you in the book about supplementing with vitamins and minerals that are not part of food that you're eating. Why? Well, I have, I have um, several observations to make. Okay. Food is always safe. Well, food is, is much safer because we're more likely to have uh, the nutrients in a complete form. Uh, folate, for example, there are several uh, uh, folate-like molecules, um, all of which are biologically active. So having the green plant folate as opposed to the uh, pill version, the right. green plant's going to be uh, superior. Vitamin C from your lemon will be superior to vitamin C in your capsule. Unless, of course, it's lipospheric vitamin C. <laughs> the, uh, so the synthetic vitamins, when they are synthesized, they are not going to be the, have the same energy, the same vibrational state, or, in my mind, the same efficacy in the body. The other uh, problems, uh, when I begin to supplement, let's, we'll, we'll talk about vitamin D. Uh, vitamin D, critical, I, uh, in my practice, I put people on vitamin D. D or D3? D3. Okay. Uh, and we followed their levels. As you replace someone's vitamin D, now you, you may get uh, them out of proportion with their vitamin A and vitamin K. If you're taking uh, a lot of greens, that's going to take care of your vitamin K. If you're having uh, a lot of organ meat, that will take care of your vitamin A. Something that most of us don't do is eat a lot of organ meat. No, we don't, we don't eat a lot of organ meats. Uh, we'll talk about zinc, copper, and iron. If you take only one of those minerals, you can get the other two out of proportion. Uh, iodine and selenium. If you take a lot of iodine, uh, which can be very helpful with detox, you can get uh, a proportional problem with uh, if you don't have enough selenium. So, you know, for that reason, I was trying to put the brakes on that supplements are okay, but you really need to have someone uh, guide you so you don't create these nutritional problems because of difficulty with balance. A naturopath that I interviewed said it's called fractionalization with supplementing. So many people fractionalize the way they supplement, so they don't eat enough of the right foods. And then they pick different things to take as a supplement, and that's the fractionalization of supplementation that doesn't work. Yes, I mean, they, they absolutely get themselves into trouble. Uh, and to think that I can eat crap and fix it with a pill, completely wrong. You have to fix the food. 
And if you go paleo, you eat organ meats, you eat the way our ancestors ate. When we've done the nutritional analyses uh, on my diet and, and prep for our study, the registered dietitians were stunned because I exceeded the recommended daily allowance for all of the nutrients, with the exception of vitamin D, which you don't expect to get in your food anyway. So I exceeded that by a factor of uh, 1.5 to 20, depending on the nutrient. They're like, oh my God, they'd never see anyone who had such a balanced and good diet. That's extraordinary. Do I dare ask what your food bill is every month? <laughs> now, I know you have a whole family, so it's not fair not to ask family, you that. I can't really tell you. I, I will make the observation. <laughs> so, you know, in, in 2007, I'm on disease-modifying drugs, spending thousands of dollars every month on my drugs. And thinking I was going to have to go out on disability, there was a real possibility that I was going to be in a nursing home. The specter of this huge financial burden was very great. Now, four years later, I'm no longer on any disease-modifying drugs. That's great. I'm not facing the specter of going out on disability, and I'm not facing the specter of uh, nursing home care, ultimately. That's fantastic. So when people raise that the, this is expensive, you know, my response is we will all pay, absolutely will pay for the uh, food choices we make. We pay now for food that tastes great and gives us uh, youth, energy, vitality, or we pay for a lot of junk food, white flour, white sugar that will destroy our health, lead to more doctor bills, surgeries, disability, and nursing home care. You're really right. It's just a question of when you do it. Talk a little bit about the fish oils. A lot of people have been concerned about whether they should take fish oils or not. I mean, there's a big fish oil craze, first of all. Many of us are told have salmon three times a week and also take fish oils. Some people are taking flax. And I notice in your book you said you get much better absorption, 40% better absorption than you do with flax oil. Why? Yeah, so uh, my body can convert the flax oil, the omega-3 in flax oil, uh, hemp oil, walnut oil, or eventually through many steps to dicosa hexanoic acid and icosa pentanoic acid. Those are DHA, EPA. Those are structures that my all of my cells need to make the nice lining around the cell, and my brain needs to insulate the wiring between cells. So I can take about 5% of the uh, long-chain omega-3 fatty acid in flax oil and get it converted over to EPA and DHA. If I'm pregnant, that number can go up to 7 sometimes 10%. Totally different. So uh, if I have fish oil, you can look on the capsule. It will tell you how much EPA and DHA uh is in that capsule, and one can work with their doc to know how much uh, they should be taking. Uh, typically, a gram of uh, EPA, DHA uh, is a target that many psychiatrists and cardiologists would now recommend. In general, that's like two tablespoons of flax oil or uh, a couple of uh, two one-gram capsules of fish oil. I also make the observation that it's the ratio omega-3 to omega-6 fats that are really important. So if if the person doesn't change their use of vegetable oils, fried foods, 
corn-fed meats, the ratio will still be really screwed up, and they'll have way too many uh, omega-6s. So in addition to taking some fish oil, switching to grass-fed meat, wild fish, one needs to eliminate uh, vegetable oils from the diet and eliminate grain-fed meats. So when you say vegetable oils, do you also mean olive oil? Olive oil, I greatly reduce. If anything's going to be fried, it should be in a animal fat or coconut oil because that's heat tolerant. Right. Even olive oil, when you fry in it, you're uh, destroying all those great antioxidants in olive oil and you're generating trans fats, which are terrible for your blood vessels. How about having a tablespoon or two of olive oil in your salads? So one can do that because most people are omega-3 deficient. I push using an omega-3 oil on the salad. Uh, a compromise would be to do a one-to-one split of the olive oil and the uh, flax oil or walnut oil. Really? But key, don't fry with that stuff. Right. Uh, and the other observation I would make is our traditional societies never used vegetable oils. That's true. You know, I don't think they're necessarily good for us. Traditional societies used animal fats, rendered animal fats. They used coconut fats, perhaps a somewhat longer history with olive oil, but societies didn't have all of this uh, vegetable oil stuff. Uh, the ratio omega-6 to omega-3 in America is like 30 to 1, 45 to 1. If you go to Japan, it's 3 to 1, 1 to 1. What is the ratio of omega-3 to 6 supposed to be from your view? Uh, 1 to 1 or 3 to 1. Okay. My advice is go to your cupboard, take all that stuff, throw it away. Or if you're going to use some, put a little bit on your salad. A little bit of oil does help you absorb a number of very helpful nutrients in the greens. So having it on salad dressing, a small amount, perfectly fine. Frying, not a good idea. If you're going to fry, you got to use like bacon fat, tallow, ghee, just clarified butter that doesn't have any of the proteins in it. So you don't mean regular butter? Correct. You could use ghee. I actually use bacon fat and coconut oil primarily. Very interesting. And do you eat eggs every day? Oh No, if I, uh, because I'm egg sensitive. I, although I'll make eggs for my family. Uh, we you know, get some salsa, uh, fry up the eggs, and I'd, uh, or fry the eggs and put them on a bed of kale chips, which uh, right now uh, is my family's favorite way of having kale chips and having eggs. You have a dehydrator, right? Right. Uh, you can do kale chips in the oven, and the recipe I have in my book is for oven kale chips. But I'd take the same recipe, put it in a dehydrator, dehydrate them until they're the level of crispiness that you like, and oh my gosh, they are so good. And you won't lose the nutrients? If you dehydrate at 105 degrees or less, you retain all of the enzyme activity, all the uh, nutrient activity. So uh, I consider low-temperature dehydration to be ideal. Wow, that's great. Talk about your clinical trials. Now, what is happening with this? Are you raising money for this? Okay, I know so, you set up yes, the foundation. Yes, I'm raising money. So please go to my website, Terry Walls, actually thewallsfoundation.com. There's a link telling you how you can give us money. The clinical trial that we're doing right now is for secondary and primary progressive MS. We are using the same clinical uh, interventions that I used in my first year of my recovery. So uh, that's intensive uh, nutrition. Uh, we teach meditation, massage, stretching, 
exercise, electrical stimulation of the muscles. You're very big on the electrical stimulation of the muscles for MS. Well, that was very helpful to me. We're seeing it to be very helpful for the trial. It requires a physical therapist to design a program specific to that individual. And we do that for the exercise. It's very specific to that person. Their ESTEM program is specific to them. We work with them every week to slowly uh, advance things for them. Uh, we presented our uh, first six months data at the 2011 Neuroscience Conference in Washington, D.C. Uh, we were deemed a hot topic, which is uh, a recognition uh, that it is so remarkable to have recovery in studying of, of progressive MS. And what we were able to report was that there was a uh, uh, quite significant uh, clinically meaningful improvement uh, in fatigue, that fatigue was reduced uh, in uh, seven, well, six of eight subjects uh, had a clinically notable improvement in their fatigue. That's very exciting. Very. Uh, and, of course, that further improved as we went out to 12 months. Uh, we now have uh, gotten a second grant so we could add MRIs of the brain looking at the white matter or the myelin uh, in the next wave. So we'll be adding 12 more people into the study. I anticipate we'll begin scheduling those folks probably in March. The approvals take a long time. So frustrating, but, you know, that's just how it is. How do you think that the medical industry or culture is going to receive you in the coming years? Well, we can look at how I've been received at the College of Medicine. You know, when I began to recover, it's interesting. The Department of Internal Medicine invited me to give grand rounds. This was a very unique grand round. So it was a case report. Uh, I was the case. And I went through the, the medical literature of why I chose these interventions and then uh, reviewed my progress. That generated uh, an interesting conversation. Some people thought it was the most brilliant grand rounds ever, and others thought I was a nut and I should be banished from the college. So uh, a lot of interesting conversation. Uh, then in the following the year following that, I was able to uh, get my clinical trial going. And, of course, medicine likes science. We like research. And uh, the fact that, you know, we'd, we'd gotten a trial, I managed to even... Uh, get it funded uh, gave me suddenly uh, tremendous credibility. Then we have uh, internal research days. So we're presenting our preliminary findings uh, and that of course generated tremendous interest. So then I started having basic scientists calling me up saying, Dr. Walls, I understand you have some frozen blood. Let me pitch uh, an idea for you about things we could look for in that blood. So we've added a few more basic scientists to our study. That's great. And we're beginning to look at some potential biologic markers that may be changing that we could correlate with people's improvement. Very excited about that. I'm writing grants to fund more of the basic science that we could do on the blood of our study subjects now that we're showing clinical improvement. We'll have Internal Medicine Research Week, I think February 9th uh, or February 7th, one of those two days it's coming up. And we'll have a poster and we'll uh, present there. Um, and I uh, am working on an article for our first 
six subjects that we will be hopefully sending off uh, in the next month. Uh, when we're writing a grant for a couple million dollars to extend uh, this study, do what's called a randomized control. So we'd uh, have bring people in, randomize them to either wait six months or start the full program. Uh, and then at six months, the folks who waited, we will cross over to the full uh, program. That way we can show that if you do nothing, people continue to decline or at least don't improve. And when they do the WALS protocol, we'll be able to show that there's statistically significant uh, improvement or not. Uh, yeah, I think it's noteworthy when our statistician who's working on the grant with me went through our preliminary data. Uh, they came back and said, you know, based on what you've got so far, uh, we'll say that you're powered, uh, you have such a strong effect that we don't need to have 100 people in, my, in our arms. We should be able to show a statistical difference with 10. Uh, we're going to write the grant for 20. But that is a, uh, an astoundingly large effect size. Wow. Very dramatic. Very exciting. Why do you think it is that you're not under great attack by the medical priesthood? Oh, I will be. <laughs> you know, um, I, I will be when I present. I find it fascinating, uh, the conversations that uh, we have afterwards. What gets funded at the NIH is molecule-by-molecule studies. And this is not a molecule-by-molecule study. This is really a systems biology. We fix as much broken chemistry as we can, uh, and then let the ship, uh, that is the body, write itself. So small foundations are funding my work. I, I, I don't know if I'll ever get the NIH or the MS Society to fund this kind of work because it's not, it's not, I'm never going to do the molecule-by-molecule molecule study. Explain what molecule-by-molecule molecule study is. We control everything that we can, so only one tiny variable exists, one molecule. And uh, so we can do that in mice. Uh, we do that with drug studies with people. So we can see what the effect of adding just one molecule uh, would do. Why is that so good? And why is that a well, standard? The reason uh, science likes that is it helps me understand how the chemistry of life happens. We do it molecule by molecule. So my study shows marked improvement. When people say, okay, Terry, so what's the mechanism I can lay out theories as to what the mechanisms are, but I don't have any molecular studies that are going to be able to say, this is what happened, we changed this chemical reaction here, we changed that of kappa B, we uh, influenced IL-10, IP-12, I can't do any of that. But you're having a systems biological Right. State change. So we're having a systems approach. We're fixing many broken systems. Going forward, I'm going to be able to do this very detailed nutrition evaluation at the baseline and at the end. And so what I predict that we'll see is a wide variety of nutritional abnormalities at the beginning that will be largely corrected by my study intervention. And so we'll see uh, more appropriate physiology at the 12 month. So we're, we're going to, we're adding, because I have more money now, we're adding a bunch of uh, basic science uh, chemical studies in addition to the MRI studies.
I think Montel would be interested in talking with you. <laughs> well, if you have a connection with Montel, let me know. I don't know, but it sounds like maybe we should help put you in touch with him because he has everything to lose. I mean, at least he's juicing now. He's involved with this juicing company, but he's really into vegetables and juicing heavily. Where are you at about juicing? It sounds like you want us to eat nine plates or nine cups. So of- uh, in our study, I tell folks, if you can't get all nine cups in, juice what you can't and drink it. And we have several people who do that. Juicing is fine. You'll get more of the enzymes, biologic activity, a lot of nutrients. You give up on the fiber. So it can feel a little crazy to me that people juice, and then they have to take a lot of extra fiber so they can keep pooping. My approach is I put it in a uh, Vitamix on high, pulverize it into uh, a juice, you know, so add some water, and I'll drink that. I've retained the fiber. Uh, the Vitamix breaks it down uh, so it's more readily absorbed, probably a higher absorption rate, but then I'm not losing the fiber. There are benefits to juicing, but losing that fiber gets to be a problem too. One thing we left out in this is the issue of fruits. The whole food pyramid is so off. It's a joke, and it's been a joke a long time. And then there's a whole faction of people that say, don't touch fructose, even in fruits. Don't eat too much fruit. You'll blow up and get fat. What is your take on fruits? Talk to us. I think fruit's going to be okay. In general, if you look at uh, my plan, you've got nine cups. And you can have fruit that's going to have to fit in the all colored all the way through category. Okay. You count it as part of your nine cups. So that's berries, peaches, oranges, plums apricots, nectarines. It is not apples, pears, or bananas. Now, I let people have those. But Wait, Hippocrates nine- is telling me that we can't have our apple a day? I'm confused. No, no, you can. What I'm telling you is I want you to get nine cups, you know, the greens, sulfur, the color. Right. If you're still hungry, have that banana. In general, two or three servings of fruit a day, if you've got six servings of non-starchy vegetables, it's going to be okay. But the more fruit you have, the greater the risk you have of growing the carbohydrate-loving bacteria in your bowels. I don't think many of us have heard that. If you have uh, berries, peaches, plums, prunes, there's tremendous antioxidant benefits, long history of uh, medicinal healthful use. I think that's going to be okay if you have uh, two servings of colored fruits or three servings of colored fruits a day. Having said that, we are all absolutely unique. And I I encourage people to have a food symptom diary. If my observation is, you know, even having that uh, apple every day seems to give me more trouble, then yes, stop. We all need to pay more attention to our unique responses. You remind me of the doctor of long ago. The doctors that would tell their patients to listen to their bodies. We don't find that very often now. Well, we certainly need to be paying more attention. I I think it's very important to have a personalized approach. Our clinical trial, there is an overarching plan but we personalize everything to the individual. Even the food plan, as people enter the study, they're doing their daily logs. We're calling every week, uh, talking with them about their observations. 
uh, and then helping that person see the patterns and uh, tweak uh, the diet for them. Our goal is that by the time the person is done with the study, they know how to read their bodies very well, to read their reactions when they're having problems, and then they can sit down and reflect on what were the likely triggers and make the necessary corrections. The work you're doing is really fabulous. In your clinical trials, are you going to be looking at all at the hormone balance or state of the MS patients? Well, we will not because I don't have money for that part. Okay. Doing clinical trials, you only get to do what you can get money for. Right. I'm very excited. The university did create a fund for me to raise money to, and that will, the greater success that I have, uh, that will give me more flexibility in being able to design the trials the way I think would be most beneficial. You're such an inspiration. I'm so excited about the work that you're doing, and I'm so appreciative that you came on today to be our guest on the show. Is there anything else you'd like to say? A couple more things. I I, I, uh, would encourage people to pick up the books, buy the books, buy the lectures, uh, because uh, that will help support the research. Because I'm donating the profits from uh, the books and CDs, DVDs to support the clinical trials. Uh, It'd help us get pilot data, which I can then use to write grants for the NIH, the MS Society, larger foundations. So we could all have a role to play, either in making donations outright or buying the books, CDs, DVDs, because all of those proceeds will end up getting used to support more clinical trials. I'm sure your family is very proud of the work that you're doing and so proud of the fact that you are in recovery from MS. I'm sure they're so happy. Well, it's a very different future. My, my kids were in junior high. My daughter was in junior high. My son was in high school. They could tell I was hugely struggling. Uh, they knew it was eminent that I'd be becoming disabled, unable to work, that I couldn't sit up anymore at the table. I had to be fully reclined at meals uh, or in bed. That was the future uh, that my kids saw. And then for them to see this amazing transformation in my health, actually in their health because we changed what they were eating as well, they understand in a much more visceral, experiential level the connection between the choices we make every day in our foods, our actions, our behaviors, and the health we have or fail to have. Thank you so much for being on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Dr. Terry Walls, the author of Mining My Mitochondria, the second edition, How I Overcame Secondary Progressive Multiple Sclerosis and Got Out of My Wheelchair, and also Food and Brain Health, Lectures and Supplemental Materials. Please go to terrywalls.com, T-E-R-R-Y-W-A-H-L-S.com. I hope that you will come back on the show as our guest six months or a year from now. I'd like to hear how you're doing, and we'd like to support your work. Thank you so much, Dr. Walls. Thank you.